Thank you, Dawson, and thank all of you for uh, being here this morning and participating with us in worship of our great God and King. We're going to continue. What I want to do today is just finish this section of Romans that we've been in for several weeks now, uh, starting in verse uh, chapter 3, 21 through 31. These 10 verses are foundational to the Christian faith. Doesn't matter what denomination you are, doesn't matter what uh, brand of, of label you put on yourself as a Christian, if it's Presbyterian or Catholic or Orthodox or Baptist, this chapter, and particularly these 10 verses, are at the very heart of our faith. It, it, it's, it's almost too much to, to get into your mind, the importance of these. Now, Romans is notoriously difficult to outline. I haven't found one scholar that is able to just perfectly outline the book of Romans because Paul was probably sitting in a chair or walking, pacing around in a room and he had an amanuensis, a a scribe who was writing what he was saying. So what you're getting from Paul is... A, a communication that is sometimes sermons, sometimes lecture, uh, sometimes he just stops and praises God. He gives doxology. And it's really uh, amazing. So don't think that Paul sat down at a, a table and he was writing this out. That's not how this letter was created. It was created by a man who was pouring his heart out to people he had not yet met and doing it in love and telling them foundational truths of the Christian faith. So here's my working outline. I humbly submit it to you, um, and it's absolutely the best outline that you'll ever find. (laughs) All right, chapter one. I'm going to run you through it quick so we can get into the rest of three. In chapter one, in the first seven verses, Paul lays out his credentials, but more importantly, he lays out the credentials of the gospel. He said, I'm here, I'm coming to preach, but I, am, I have one thing to tell you. The good news about Jesus Christ, God's Son, David's Son, King of Israel, the one who has come to rescue this world from the calamity that he will describe uh, in a moment. All right. You know, having a computer is a curse and a blessing. But if this goes down, I'm still going to be able to preach it up to you. Because I got it in my heart. All right. So these first seven verses, in, 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 cha- in verse 8 through 15, he switches over and he just proclaims his desire to come to Rome because he loved these people he hadn't even seen. I want to come, want to impart some gift to you and maybe even receive a gift from you. Then in 16 and 17, these two verses should be marked in your Bible. Memorize it if you need to. This is the heart, the very heart of the Christian faith in, in just a couple sentences. Paul says, the gospel of Jesus is the power to bring you salvation. When he talks about salvation, it's not just merely going to heaven. It's that your whole life is transformed into one where Christ is at the center of your life and everything you do is done in faith 
for, in him. A, a remarkable couple of verses. Now in 18 through 32 of this first chapter, he describes what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with people, and why God is justly angry. A lot of people say, well, why is he so angry? Well, you know what? Read these few verses, 18, 18 through 32, very, very short, and he will tell you why, it'll tell you why he's mad. He's mad because human beings from the very beginning, starting with Adam and Eve till today, we have suppressed consciously, suppressed the truth and exchanged it for a lie. We do it every day. We can't help ourselves sometimes. We constantly are, and it takes a lot of effort. We suppress the truth that we know about God, and we reach out for other things, idols. And these idols aren't little carved statues anymore. They're things we're all completely comfortable with. Money and power and success and good looks and approval from people. I mean, if, you, if, if, if you're in pastoral ministry, that's why you're there, not because God called you. Right? We're in pastoral ministry because we want your approval. Right? Amen. Let's hear a hearty amen for that. That's our idol. And I'll tell you, if you're a minister of the gospel or if you're a teacher or you're a, a boss at work, Somewhere down there, something. And Paul says, you know, God's mad at that. And he's mad at people for suppressing the truth and replacing it for a lie. But he doesn't stay mad. He goes on. And in chapter 2 through 320, he tells us that all people are under the condemnation. Whether they're religious or not religious, Jew or Gentile, every person has this infection this virus present in their soul. And it has tainted all of humanity's talking in big and general terms. And then comes our verse where we come to. And Paul says in 21 of chapter 3, but now, but now, God be thanked for those words. But now, let's read the passage. It's in your bulletin. I, I printed out the New Living Standard, if you have a New Living Translation. If you have any uh, questions about the translations of the Bible, you can come talk to me or Dawson or really any, any one of our leaders and how these translations are made. And th this is a good one, and it's very clear and understandable, and it's been checked. I have checked every word, so it's okay. Now, when, it, when we hit a part that's not okay, I'll let you know. Let's hear God's Word. But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. This is true. For everyone who believes, no matter who we are, whether we're Jew or Gentile, and that's how the world was looked at through, the, through Paul's eyes, there were two, just two kinds of people. For everyone, this is everyone without exception and out without distinction. Everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet, God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus 
when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when He held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For He was looking ahead and including them in what He would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate His righteousness. For He Himself is fair and just. And He makes sinners right in His sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of Jews only? Isn't He also God of the Gentiles? Of course He is. There is only one God, and He makes people right with Himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. This is the word of the Lord. All right, it's no secret that I love that book, Everlasting Righteousness. If you don't read it, you probably won't be saved. So you really need to go get a copy. <laughs> now, there's, a, there's, there's some books that are just absolutely classics. And this is one of the Christian classics where... Horatius Bonar, this great Presbyterian pastor and theologian back in the centuries past, the late 19th century, 18, 1800s, whatever century that is. Uh, he, wrote, he wrote this wonderful book, and it is amazing. Because people in the church, all of us religious people, we constantly have the temptation to slide every day back into this idea that we are working for God's approval, that we have to do something for God's approval. And Bonar shreds that to pieces, as have other great theologians. Listen to these quotes. First one from Horatius Bonar, that just, it's, it's remarkable. I don't know what kind of mind thinks this stuff up after reading the book of Romans until he's memorized it, but there you go. Listen to this. Talking about Jesus. The things that He did not do were laid to His charge and He was treated as if He had done them all. So the things that He did do are put to our account. Listen to this. And we are treated by God as if we had done them all. The things that He did, that we did, that He was charged with the things that we did, and He hadn't done them. But at the same time, the good that He did, the righteousness that He did, the glory of our Savior is transferred to us, imputed to us. R.C. Sproul says this, listen, 
at the heart of the gospel, this is why I'm telling you this today, at the heart of the gospel is a double imputation or a, 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 a double transfer, if you will. My sin is imputed to Him in this twofold transaction. We see that God, who does not negotiate with sin, who doesn't compromise His own integrity with our salvation, but rather punishes sin, listen, punishes sin so fully and really after it has been imputed to Jesus, the sin, our sins, all of it, laid on His head. Jesus retains His own righteousness. And so, listen, He is both just and justifier, as the Apostle tells us. So my sin goes to Jesus His righteousness comes to me in the sight of God. The first part, most Christians don't have any problem with. They believe God, Jesus, took our sin. It's the second part. That His righteousness is imputed to us. We struggle with that truth every day. So here's the Apostle Paul, double imputation. For our sake, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There you have the apostle and a great theologian of our century, a great theologian of the last century. And you can go back and back and back to St. Augustine and even the church fathers. They understood this idea that our sin was placed on Him and His righteousness came to us. And if double imputation is true, if it is, I believe it is. I believe that's the teaching of Scripture. The implications... We just cannot overstate them. And so I'm making the case to you this morning and hope that you will think about this. Paul is saying, and the Bible, I think, the entire Bible is saying, this is the key to your Christian life. And if Christianity has been a burden to you, if it has weighed you down, then you really need to start wrestling with the second part, the second part, of double imputation. Christ's righteousness for us. And it's not anything that we do. So let's look at a couple things this morning. Very quickly, I want to share with you what God does, from these verses, what God does alone, by Himself. In theology, we call it monergism. God, mono, one, erg, work. Ergonomic work. What God does by Himself, alone. No help from us, absolutely nothing. And Paul spells it out here. Look, look at verse 21. I'm just going to go through them fast, and I want you to notice how many times he says that he's going to do something alone, without us doing anything. We are not players. 21. God has shown us a way. 24a. God has in His grace, freely, makes us right. 24b, He did this. He freed us. 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice. 
Look at 25 and 26. This sacrifice shows God is fair. He held back. He did not punish. He was looking ahead. God did this to demonstrate His righteousness. He Himself is fair. He makes sinners right in His sight when they believe in Jesus. Do you see that all of this, you, you can have chapter 1, 18 through 32 in your mind, the wrath of God, but look at this. This is just a page over. And what he's saying, we, we tend to get, we, we tend to, to get mono, like monovision, you know, you just go down, go, oh, God's wrathful and mad and all that. Yeah, but look at what he's saying. With nothing in our hands, with no effort on our part, God does everything alone to make it possible for us to come to Him. And look again, what, he, what does He do alone? What is it that He's doing alone? Look back at these verses, all ten of them are remarkable. Verse 21, He makes us right. Verse 22, He made us right. Verse 24, He makes us right. Three times in 26, He says He demonstrates His righteousness, that He Himself is fair and just, that He makes sinners right. Look what He's doing alone. He's making us something. We're not making ourselves. You didn't create yourselves. That's why it's so heinous when we say, I wish I was never born or I want to die or whatever. Sometimes that really does afflict us, but we have to repent of those things when they challenge us. And even when we spend a season in depression, we come back to this. He makes us right. 28, He made us right with God. 30, He makes people right with Himself. Look at how many times, I think, both times, I counted eight maybe more times, that He is doing something that we have nothing to do and He's doing it because He loves us. And He knows if He leaves us in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, that we will perish. I don't know, if, you know, I don't know who's going to go to hell and who's not. I don't know that. And you don't know that. You don't know what God's going to do with people. But I know that without Jesus Christ, I know what He would have to do with me because I am guilty, guilty, guilty of sin. And not just, you know, the soft sins, the white, white colored sins. I have black sins. And I know that you do. Some people don't admit it. What are you going to do with those sins? How are you going to make it right? What? We should be asking ourselves and we should ask people when we're talking to them about their faith, whatever faith they have, how are you going to make yourself right? What are you going to do? Go up there to the God of the universe and say, hey, you know, I really tried. I, I did my best effort. Did you or is that a lie? You see, nobody does their best effort. Come on. We're not real with ourselves. And the reason... It's because sin has captured... We're in chains of darkness. We don't know. But the day that Jesus sets you free, you better know that it was Him who set you free. You did nothing. You didn't come and kind of help Him with one or two of the links of those chains. Oh no, we bound ourselves with those chains like Ebenezer Scrooge, and they're a heavy burden. They weigh us down, and they'll carry you down into hell itself. Hell here! You don't have to wait till the afterlife. 
Your life will be hard and, and, and burdensome. And that's why I say if you're a Christian and you're just weighed down with all of the things you've got to do, then you don't believe the doctrine of monergism. And sadly, many people in Christianity don't. To their everlasting loss and peril. I want a God that comes into my life for goodness sakes. I want somebody to come save me because I know I can't do it myself. And I want somebody in my life every day that can prop me up because I know I can't prop myself up. Really. <laughs> so I'm stumbling around. You can, find, you can think you're strong, but our power, our strength, folks, is made right when we come to Jesus and find strength in Him. Yes? I, where are you going to get it? What are you going to bring? What are you going to do? Look, I've belabored this. But the Bible belabors this. Adam and Eve brought him fig leaves. You know, God probably chuckled when he saw it. Oh, brother. You know, I can see right through those fig leaves. You don't do that because such a good job with that. Are you going to cover your sin with fig leaves? Some mornings I get up and I pray, God, forgive me for the fig leaves, for goodness sakes. Please, Lord. These fig leaves are just, they're rotten. Come on. I need blood. And a lot of Christians are squeamish about blood. Don't be squeamish. You better need blood. Blood is life, the Bible says. we got to have that blood of Jesus I love that hymn we song, sang. This is what he does alone. The doctrine of monergism is the struggle that we all face. It's why we wrestle every day because we, we know we need to be right with God and we're trying to figure it all out. And here's our response. Listen carefully because it's all in these verses. That's why I'm telling you. Ten verses that are at the very heart of Christianity. It's like way down in there. Can't get away from it. No human being, by the way, can get away from it. Every human being is going to face this in some respect. You can go to Tibet and go out there in the mountains of Tibet and find some person that's uh, never heard anything about anything. And you can say, what do you believe about God? Well, there's the gods here in the mountains. And how do you get right with these gods? Or do they like you? Do they not like you? What do you do? Oh, come here, I'll show you. And they'll have an elaborate system. Yes? of making themselves right with God. Because we all know, we all know, that without something, we're not right. So what does God do? He does not give us something. He gives us someone. No religion on the earth does what Christianity does. What is our response? Paul explains it. We must believe the gospel. You must believe. You must trust. And I've explained week after week that faith is not a thing you have inside. It's not a muscle you're trying to build. It is simply a decision you make with your mind and your heart. You say, you know, I'm going to trust Jesus. 
And that's all it is. There's nothing more to that. And that little bit of faith is only as good as the object in which you are putting it in. And so when you're putting your little seed, your little tiny mustard seed of faith, when you put that in Jesus, it explodes. Because it gets all its power from Him, not from you. You don't look to yourself for faith. You look to Him. And your faith is only going to be as strong as the concentration of your heart and your love and your passion is to Jesus. Now, I'll be the first one to say that fluctuates, but listen to how Paul explains what our response should be. Verse 22. Look, you can mark these. It's remarkable. We're made right with God by placing faith in Jesus. 25. We're made right with God when we believe in Jesus, sacrificed His life, shed His blood. 26. He makes sinners right when they believe in Jesus. 27. Can we boast of anything to be accepted by God? No. Our acquittal is based on faith. So when we're made right with God through faith, that's verse 28, He makes people right with Him, verse 30, only by faith. Verse 31, if we emphasize faith, do we forget the law? Of course not. Only when we have faith do we fulfill the law. Faith. And I've given you quotes by Bonar and Tozer and all these great pastors who said, faith is not a thing. Faith is simply a choice of Believing in Christ, it's what what Tozer said, it's taking our eyes off of ourselves, which is the sin we are all dealing with from the garden. Autonomy. I'm my own God. I can make my own decisions. I'm the captain of my salvation. And on and on. And saying, no, I need those skins. Not these fig leaves, not going to do it. i got to have something. And it's averting what, what uh, Bonar says, it's averting your gaze from yourself and, and your puny faith and your doubts and all the rest. It's just averting your gaze and fixing them on Jesus Christ and the writers of the New Testament and the writers of the Old Testament all testify to this truth that you must cast your eyes away from self and onto Yahweh. Yod the great Lord of the universe. Believe the gospel. And the gospel was first preached in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's where it started. You know it all, just in a few chapters. All the rest of your Bible, folks, is there to reinforce that very fact. So how do you know you're believing the gospel? Listen with this. I want to finish with this because a lot of things, maybe some things are going around. How do I know that I'm really believing? How do I know that it's not just presumption that I'm dealing with? I'm just presuming on God's grace, which a lot of people uh, think about and they do. I had one man when I first came here to Christ the King. I had a man in our church, wonderful man, who struggled mightily with this. And I was preaching the same thing 18 years ago. And he came to my office one day, and he used to come regularly, and we would argue and talk. And He came in and he said, You know, I don't get that. You keep talking about grace. You mean to tell me I don't have to do anything? Nothing? 
that nothing, it doesn't depend on anything I do. So I can go do whatever I want. That's what it sounds like you're saying. I can do whatever you want. I said, yes, that's what I'm preaching. I am preaching that, that you can go do whatever you want. That God's freed you to do that, and He's not counting anything. He doesn't want, you're not going to earn your salvation in any way. You're not going to contribute to it in any way. I said to him, so tell me, what do you want to do? What is the want in your heart? And he told me, he says, I want to serve Jesus. I want to do everything for Him. I want to give my life to Him. And I said, In Arabic, that's good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, go and do that good and give Jesus the glory. What is your problem? What is your problem with that? That you have been radically loved, for goodness sakes, radically freed to do what you want to do. What do you want to do? Well, I want to go do this and this and this. Sin, that is presumption. That's presuming on God's grace. That's saying, you know, He'll forgive me. Chuck says He forgives everybody. There's no problem. Uh, I can sin all I want, and I'll just come back and, and repent and believe the gospel, and everything's okay. That's not the faith he's talking about. That's presumption. We'll know when you have saving faith, when you are wrestling with sin, when you're down in the trenches of your life, looking at stuff that you know is not right, and you're wrestling with I don't care what they are. Pornography, greed, murder, adultery. I don't care what it is. Thieving and stealing or just thinking you're just and you're righteous and you're a good person. That's also very bad. All of those should make you uncomfortable and you should be wrestling with those. And if you are wrestling, you don't like them, you know they're wrong, you're going to fight them, you have saving faith. That's what he means in verse 31. If we emphasize faith, where is your trust? On what are you relying? Do we forget the law? Of course not. Only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Fulfilling the law, folks. (laughs) Jesus said, do you want to fulfill the law? Believe in me. Do what I tell you. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And fight your sin. He told the, adult, the woman caught in adultery, where are your accusers? Have they condemned you? Have they all left? And the woman said, yes. No, no one's accused me. And Jesus said this. Listen, his first words out of his mouth. Neither do I. Now, Go and sin no more. If he had reversed those two words, where would you and I be? Go and sin no more. Then I will forgive you. You'd be lost. But that's the heart of your Savior. She's in the dirt. And he says, I don't condemn you. Now you're free. Go and sin no more. Do you see it? That's the gospel this man is talking about. 
Presumption says, oh, well, I can't help it. I'm going to sin. Chuck gave me permission. I did not. But, oh, he will forgive me. You see, there's a cavalier attitude towards God's grace instead of a deeply profound understanding of his love. Why would you want to do anything? This is the God who loves you. And after you commit the sin, He'll still love you. He'll never leave you. You can sin a million times. He'll never leave you. If you're wrestling with your sin, He knows. And He's in the fight with you. Why did you get the Holy Spirit? What's He here for? To be by your side. To to convict you of your sin. When I sin, it's not very long after that. I know I did, and I feel bad about it, and I start negotiating. Well, you know, I'll get up at 5.30. I, you know, I'll, I'll pray. I'll read my Bible more. I'll quit saying bad words. What did people say when they came to Jesus begging for healing or rescue or cleansing lepers? The first word out of their mouths was, Lord. Lord, save me, help me. They didn't come to him and say, you know, I've been doing this and this. The ones that did went away and Jesus wept over them. Yes? That's what we're talking about, folks. Faith says this. Here's what faith will say every day of your life from now till you die. God freed me from the penalty for sin. God presented Jesus a sacrifice for sin. Jesus sacrificed His life. Jesus shed His blood for me. What does that mean? That means you're not looking at you. You're looking at Him. You're bringing Him into the front seat. He is not your co-pilot. Bumper sticker theology. No! He's the pilot. He's the captain of your salvation. He's the anchor of your soul. He's the God who gave His life and blood for you. And He promised, I'll never leave you and your children. Never leave them. I'm with you. Now let's go fight. You see, that's faith, not presumption. Paul, i got to finish. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was a, 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 a a great martyr. And Eusebius in his book of church history details Polycarp's life. He's, when I first became a Christian, I was ex- exposed to Polycarp and I just was captured by the life of this great saint. He was the bishop of Smyrna and he was ordained, get this, he was ordained by the Apostle John himself. This man, Polycarp, was a, was a disciple of the disciple John the beloved, the one who wrote the book of John and the little Johns and the Revelation. And Polycarp, when he was aged, he was confronted by the Roman authorities for his Christian beliefs and they, they took him out, they found him guilty and they put him on a stake to burn him, to burn him alive. And they asked him if he had any last words and here's what they say and you know, this is history but listen to what Polycarp said. Eighty and six years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king, my savior? How can I do it? They set the fire and the fire 
according to church history, did not consume him. It just burned on the outside and he's just standing there. So they got a, the soldiers got spears and they stabbed him and killed him because the flame wouldn't consume him. What a story. Faith, folks, listen. Faith contributes nothing. Nothing. Because it's nothing. Unless you put it in something, someone of substance. I can believe that this lectern is going to save me. I can be sincere about it and I can put all my faith in this lectern. And it's just a lectern. Yes? Not going to do it. It's not about our faith. It's about His faithfulness. Well, how can you face this? What power is there to face this? Jesus, our King, is that power. There's no other way, folks. The rest of Romans, you won't, you won't get it. You won't understand it until you understand that faith is not looking at itself, not doing anything. It is simply fixing its eyes on Jesus Christ. Not God in the abstract, not God up there somewhere floating around, not some cosmic thing, but God Himself as He is revealed in His Son, fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ. Listen to this. I'll end with this. From Nicholas of Cusa. I love this guy. One of these old saints. In his, his uh, sermon, The Vision of God. Listen. When all my endeavor, my effort, my strength, all my endeavor is turned towards you, because all your endeavor, God's effort, His strength, His power, His love is turned towards me. When all my endeavor is turned towards you and all your endeavor is turned toward me when I look to you alone with all my attention, nor ever turn aside the eyes of my mind because you enfold me with your constant regard or love. When I direct my love towards you alone, because you alone, who are love itself, has turned all yourself to me. And what, O Lord, is my life, except that I am in your embrace. Your delightsome sweetness does, listen, does so lovingly enfold me. That is the Christian faith. Nothing you do, everything He does, and looking to Him with all your strength, all your regard, all your affection, singularly to the end, all the days of your life. Amen. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, we do love you. We love you because you first loved us. And I, I don't know how all this works. I just know that this is true. It has to be true because I know I can't save myself. Maybe I'm just desperate, but I think it's more than that. I know that all of us deep down, like chapter 1 says, we know there's a God. We know who He is. His eternal power and His Godhead, we know it in our bones. And I pray that you will break 
the chains and the shackles that hold our hearts. And let us go free. Free to love and serve you, the living Savior, Jesus. Amen.